From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. When you have to make those decisions, do you buy the nicest ingredients to make your food since that's why people are there? Or do you pay your employees $2 more an hour? Or do you rent the building that's going to put you in the location that gives you the highest chance of success? I think that in many ways, restaurant owners have one of the most complicated business-owning ventures that you can think of. They are balancing so many different goals in one space. Today, we're talking with geographer Jennifer Watkins about restaurants, about owners, workers, customers, and how precarious the whole industry appears to be in this moment. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Servers in restaurants are in this unique position where their customers are more their bosses than their bosses are. They are directly tied to what money they make through tips. And so that just exacerbates every situation. Every moment of racism or sexism, it is all tied to money. This person directly decides whether you get paid for your labor or not. My guest today is Jennifer Watkins. She's a geographer currently pursuing a PhD at Indiana University. But Jen didn't come to graduate school to become a scholar. She had something specific in mind. Jen had been working in the restaurant industry for most of her adult life, primarily as a server and also as a manager. She worked for many years at a classic Bloomington institution, the Runcible Spoon. It's a cozy establishment in an old house in a downtown neighborhood close to campus. They're known for their quirky decor and casual cafe fare. After more than a decade in the service industry, Jen started to question her life's path and what her next move should be. I came back to college because I knew I couldn't be a server forever, but I also came back to school because I saw a lot of things in the restaurant industry that I thought were broken, I thought were really unequal and unfair, and I really wanted to put myself in a position where someday I could do something about it. I did my master's research on foodways in southern Mexico and how they were affected by tourism, but I specifically wanted to spend some time in a country of origin for, you know, a really high percentage of our restaurant workers here in the U.S. And now I am looking at what are the actual factors we can pinpoint about things that are going wrong in the restaurant industry now, and how do we identify what the restaurant even is? We talk a lot about things like raising the wage or paths to, like, equality, But I'm not always entirely sure how useful that is. I think that things like giving people a higher hourly wage doesn't fix issues like what happens if you break your leg? What happens if your kid gets sick? What happens if you have to take some time off? And it doesn't get rid of the barriers to ownership and management that are present in the restaurant industry for a lot of underserved populations, women, people of color. 
So I wanted to try to look beyond that one solution, which I think is a temporary fix, and try to think through some ideas about what are some more structural fixes we can think about instead. I am based in Louisville now, but a lot of what I've been doing is trying to form relationships and connections with various people in the city. So restaurant owners, restaurant workers, people who work for the Chamber of Commerce, people who work for nonprofit food organizations. One of the big things about my master's research that I did in Mexico is that I walked away feeling really disconnected from it. I didn't want to speak for someone else's community. So I chose Louisville partially because I had lived there when I was younger. I had worked in restaurants there. And I also, going back, wanted to spend a lot of time getting to know people who are already working in that community and trying to find out what they thought their problems were and identifying what they wanted to be doing. So a lot of what I've been doing so far is kind of preliminary relationship building and some work in like the archives. So in addition to the research I do now, I also teach food and poverty in America in the geography department. And um, you know, a lot of things about food are really personal for me. I grew up in a food insecure household in the Midwest. I spent the majority of my adult life working in restaurants. And I think that it is important for there to be more people in academia who have the lived experience before they start learning the theory and start learning to be academics. I thought that maybe the best person to do restaurant work was someone who had been a waitress for 15 years. And I I don't have a lot of interest in researching other people's lives, I guess. I have an interest in supporting the people in the area of the world that I come from and in my community and in my profession. Like I said at the beginning, I didn't come to grad school to become an academic. I came to grad school to work on restaurants. And it was always very clear to me that I was never... I wasn't here to do any other kind of work. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things that you were experiencing that made you want to do this deeper kind of study and research into, you know, approach it from an academic lens or from the lens of geography? It's such a difficult job. It's very physically grueling. I wouldn't say that I think the restaurant industry is more racist or more sexist than other industries in the U.S., but... It seems to be more allowable, and perhaps that has to do with this cultural idea of the customer always being right. We're put on a, you know, a stage for this type of performance, and dealing with those kinds of attacks are just part of that daily performance, and you kind of internalize it. And, you know, I didn't think, of course, at the time, but I do wonder sometimes what that did for me and for a lot of other young people to be 18, 19, 20 years old and have these kinds of statements constantly thrown at you on a daily basis and you just, uh, you work through it, you perform through it, to be nice to people who are saying things like that about you. So th- saying things like racist statements and mm-hmm. sexist statements. And- yeah. And that's that's very, very common. And they can be very subtle. You have to create such a case against the person to be taken seriously. 
My freshman year of college was actually 9-11, which was a particularly hard time to look at all like you were from the Middle East or the subcontinent. But, you know, so there, there are these issues, right? There are these issues of every day feeling physically exhausted and then to have to be nice every day to people that are being horrible to you. And then, you know, in my early 30s, I started having this issue of aging out. These jobs are thought of as being temporary, but for a lot of people, they're not. What is temporary is how long you may stay at one restaurant or in one position. But there are a lot of people who work in the restaurant industry for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, just not always in the same place. And it becomes a real worry if your body's going to keep up. I mentioned that I worked at the Runcible Spoon. There's, you know, at least one staircase between me and the kitchen. I don't know that my knees are ever going to recover, to be honest. So, you know, you start you start thinking about, is your body going to keep up? I, I started working in restaurants when I was 19. I dropped out of college. I had no training in finances. I had no certification for any skills I had acquired. Even though those skills turned out to be incredibly translatable and useful in my academic career, I just had all these questions of why is it this way? 10% of the U.S. workforce worked in the service industries, like restaurant and hospitality, in some way before the pandemic. That's a massive percentage of the population. So I came to grad school to try to sort that out. What kinds of skills did you find that were transferable? I have excellent communication skills. If you spend every day being nice to people who aren't being particularly nice to you, right? <laughs> I found that teaching is easier. By the end of my restaurant work, I was in my early 30s and I was a manager. And so I spent the majority of the day with working with employees that are the same age range as the students I teach now. I have really good organization and time management skills, which the further I go in academia, the more I find that that is not typical. I have just a, a lot of skills that I learned about how to work with large amounts of people on a daily basis and how to organize things very quickly with the expectation that something will go wrong. And, you know, those are skills that are useful in any profession, but we have no way to quantify or certify them in the restaurant industry as of now. The only real avenue to any kind of skill certification is culinary school, and even that has a huge amount of variation. And a lot of people in all levels of the industry don't have that. Right. They right. come to it from other places as well. Or right. It's not, or, yeah. it's not required. It doesn't guarantee you a job. There's still a lot of apprenticeship models, even in fine dining. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that most of the people that I talk with who are chefs don't have that mm -hmm. background. Right. Uh, what you said about communication skills and teaching, like I could really picture, too, that what you were saying about the performance of working in the industry and just that kind of comfort level talking to people, being in a classroom. I'm sure a lot of young grad students struggle with that initially, mm -hmm. <laughs> just like taking command of a room or whatever. And I would imagine that that would be something you would bring. Yeah, I don't feel like I have had 
nearly as much anxiety about it as some of my colleagues. It is surprising to me sometimes how quickly we start teaching and then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, that's that's not what school is about, right? Teaching you to be around huge groups of people or teaching those kinds of skills. And yeah, I see people freeze up a lot. Could you talk about the field of geography and why it seemed to you like that was a good place for the kind of work you wanted to do? Our geography department has a very strong food and agriculture subfield. Not that there are not other branches that do the same. I did my undergrad in history, and history and geography tend to have a lot of strong connections and links between them. It seemed like a more practical choice in some ways. I see a lot more geographers maybe out working on policy, doing more scholar activism or as much activism as happens in the university. I loved the puzzle making of history, right? I love the the scavenger hunt feel of digging through like a 16th century cookbook. And I, I think I always will. But for this, I thought I wanted to be in a discipline that had more connections to praxis and policy change. Also, you know, in this industry especially, it's so connected to space and place and mobility. Restaurant workers have always been extremely mobile, seasonal, like temporary workers. You know, even back in the day in Europe, like moving from country to country as like the seasons changed. And thinking about the physical space of the restaurant and how this like very short term, like ad hoc work gets set up around it, how customers are drawn from different cultural neighborhoods. Those kinds of things, I think, fit really well with the geography discipline. I'm speaking with Jen Watkins, Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at Indiana University. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the research she did in Chiapas, Mexico, for her master's thesis. Stay with us. listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young, and I'm talking with Jen Watkins. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at Indiana University. In her master's program, she did fieldwork in Chiapas, Mexico. I was in a small town called San Cristobal de las Casas, and it has a huge tourism economy. Like, over 80% of the people who live there are employed in the tourism industry in one way or another. You know, I was really just trying to look at how the food that was presented for consumption for the tourists really differed from the everyday food ways of the people who lived there, which led me down some really interesting avenues. I ended up looking at things like the performance of indigeneity in general, Indigenous food being served at restaurants by non-Indigenous people wearing Indigenous clothing. What was being sold in markets in tourist areas as opposed to markets more on the outskirts or the margins of the city. 
My master's research, quite honestly, was very scattered, which informs a lot of what I'm doing now. You know, I started grad school. They're like, well, you really need to do international research to prove you can. So I set everything up and I land in southern Mexico and I just started collecting data and information like crazy, which meant that I didn't have a great plan I'm glad I did it. I think that I wouldn't be making the research project that I'm making now if I hadn't gone down there and realized all of those things. I may not have realized how important it was to stay in my own region and my own community. It was, I will say, really fascinating to work as a non-Spanish speaking waitress in a restaurant in Mexico, though, you know, we have a lot of narratives and ideas about immigrant workers in the restaurant industry here. So it was super interesting to be on the flip side of that. I worked in a small restaurant for two months every day. There was no Wi-Fi and none of the women who worked in the restaurant spoke English. So it was a very sink or swim situation as far as my um, fluency I took two years of Spanish in preparation for the trip. I hadn't studied it before. And, you know, we just did everything. It was like a very much a pitch-in. Some days I was waiting tables. Some days I was doing food prep. Some days I would get sent off to all these markets to get food for the day. And it really disrupted a lot of ideas I had about how restaurants work. We have very specific rules around things like health and safety, around employment. And I'm not saying that as one is more positive than the other, like, you know, the U.S. is better than Mexico or vice versa, but it is a big change. So that left me thinking a lot about why the U.S. has the rules around restaurants that it has when that is not always the case in other places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that does sound... really challenging and pretty gutsy to just (laughs) be in a fast-paced work environment and not speaking the language. I learned very quickly that two years of college Spanish is, of course, not even remotely the same as being fluent, but I was fluent by the time I left. (laughs) Wow. So you said when you, after doing that, you understood that you wanted to stay closer to your own community. Mm -hmm. to continue your research. And so you chose to focus in Louisville? I did. I didn't need to be where I grew up, but I think I would have a hard time working with restaurant networks and writing about, you know, maybe some of the coastal cities, like L.A.'s food scene. Of course, I've researched it. I've read about it, but that's not my lived experience. So I thought, Since I had done the opposite for my master's, staying in the Midwest was something I wanted to do. What are the kinds of things that you're going to be looking into? What is the kind of research that you're going to be conducting? Well, I'll be doing a lot of archival research. There is very little academic writing about Louisville, which I find incredibly surprising. It's this border city in so many ways, like physically and in, you know, people's imaginations between the north and the south, between like different kinds of segregated communities, between east and west even. Yeah, I was incredibly surprised that there wasn't more research done there. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time in like UofL's archives at the Historical Society, just trying to collect people's narratives around food over the past couple of centuries. 
I obviously hope to do interview work with restaurant workers and owners as well as people who do like city planning and like small business promotion in the city. I have been doing preliminary conversations with some restaurant owners that are trying to make more changes involving labor, like implementing 401ks, providing health insurance, working with the way the restaurant in general is structured. I don't want my research to be an expose. Restaurant work is hard, and people know that. Restaurant work can be racist and sexist. People know that. I really want to focus more on how people are working around this and how people are pushing back, both restaurant owners and restaurant workers. One thing I really want to make clear is that the restaurant industry isn't broken for everybody. The restaurant industry is broken for its workers and its owners, but I think in a lot of ways for the economy, it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And that's why there is a real lack of legislation and policy making around changing some of these labor issues. So on the end of owners and workers, I, I want to see how people are getting around that, how people are using agency to push back and how they're forming communities. In my own restaurant work, the communities that I made while I was in restaurants was really lasting. When I look at who my closest friends are now, it is the people that I initially worked in restaurants with. And we've stayed connected to each other like across the country, outside of the country, through all kinds of different professions since we left. And that's because, you know, it's, a, it's an incredibly intense emotional place. And you form these connections to people that really don't go away. I want to tell more of those stories. And are you going to be looking into the sort of historical forces within cities like um, Rust Belt, cities like Louisville? I have looked a lot at the Rust Belt transition from um, manufacturing to the service economies. Every Rust Belt city works a little differently. Louisville deindustrialized later and only partially. They still have a lot of manufacturing there. But I am very interested in how in a lot of these Rust Belt cities, manufacturing didn't actually go away. The jobs just got worse. And they became jobs that were really tied to being poor and not being white after people started moving out of these cities into the suburbs. So I think there's a narrative of, you know, manufacturing declined and people got these service jobs, these restaurant jobs instead. And I think it's more complicated than that. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time in the archives trying to trace what that transition and what that relationship actually looked like. Mm -hmm. And some of the uneven development that happens across different communities. Yeah, I mean, even now in Louisville, like where restaurants are located looks really different. There's a lot of um, urban tourism in Louisville. There's been a lot of gentrification in the past 20 years. They were one of the cities that really got branded in the 90s with that like poorest cities in the country. You know, there are a lot of lists like that. That was when they really started this big push for revitalization. And I mean, you can see that in a lot of Rust Belt cities. But since then, the 
landscape of Louisville has just dramatically changed. And a lot of these populations, these more working class or poor populations, they're not gone, right? They're just shifted around to a less visible place. So I've been looking a lot at the space of the city and how these people are working in restaurants in gentrified or revitalized areas as compared to where they're actually living. The public transportation system in Louisville is notoriously bad. There is a large Latin American community on the south side of Louisville, for example, on the other side of the interstate. It's like a two-hour bus ride one way to get to downtown where all those restaurants are. So where you live really matters. But it also just doesn't make sense from a planning point of perspective when you think about it. If it's like these are the communities you're relying on for the labor. Right. And they just got to figure out some precarious method of getting there. And that's just going to mean that they're not always going to be able to manage that. Well, and it also segregates the labor force in the local, right? Sure. So we have a lot of people from Latin America working in Mexican or Cuban restaurants in that area. We have a lot more people who are white working in other neighborhoods. Um, so like, for example, you know, in Bloomington, our kitchen restaurant workforce is really overwhelmingly Mexican. Like, even if you go to a Thai restaurant, even if you go to a Japanese restaurant, the chances of the person cooking your food being from Mexico is enormously high. But in Louisville, that workforce is much more segregated by neighborhood because it is so difficult for people to travel. I was actually so used to Bloomington's restaurant scene that I found that really shocking when I went there. I just want to go back to something you said about the manufacturing jobs shifting and getting worse. And so, I mean, just forgive me if this is an ignorant question, because I just don't know that much about it. But are you saying that, um, well, either they got worse, and therefore, the people who were doing them? (sighs) I think I know what you're saying. There is a bit of both, right? So on one hand, we had a lot of white flight, from cities during the civil rights, like, uprisings and the pushing back. But also a lot of that white flight came from the fact that these jobs really degraded. And they degraded for a lot of reasons. Suddenly we have, like, steel competition from Germany and Japan. We have an oil crisis. We have the Reagan administration. We have, you know, all these different things happening. But a lot of these jobs... What happened was they lost their entitlements, right? The health insurance got worse. The pension got worse. Those kinds of securities went away, and it made it easier to justify this spreading out to the suburbs, which have, you know, started in the post-World War II period, but it it increased quite a bit during the, like, 70s and 80s. And so would you say that there's more people of color doing those manufacturer jobs now, the ones that do remain? I don't know that about Louisville Mm -hmm. yet. I think that who the most exploited community in any given place or city depends a lot on who happens to be the easiest to exploit at that given time, right? Obviously, there is a really long legacy of black exploitation in Louisville, right? Before the Civil War, it was a place where slaves were bought and sold. 
because it was on the river, because it was like that borderline between the North and the South. And after the Civil War, it was also a place where freed slaves from the South migrated looking for work. They had the same kind of community destruction in the 60s during the urban renewal period that you see in a lot of urban Black communities. So yeah, when we talk about an underserved population or an exploited workforce in Louisville, we're going to have to always talk about Black populations. But at this point, I do not know a lot about what is going on with their immigrant populations or the refugee populations. So that's that's definitely what one of the things I'm going to have to be researching mm-hmm. in the coming year. Yeah, and immigrant populations and refugee populations do tend to end up in the food industry somehow, whether it's in manufacturing or in uh, service. More and more we see refugee populations in those positions because when you have undocumented immigrants in like a meat packing facility or a factory for example when ice comes it disrupts the line mm-hmm. and time costs money so yep. yeah you you you're seeing a lot more refugee populations in those jobs now to avoid that and i know that there are refugee organizations that are really active in Louisville. In the last five years, they have programs like teaching people how to farm in the U.S. that were agricultural workers in their countries of origin and things like that. But I haven't done a lot of work on that yet. You you talked about wanting to build some networks and relationships with people in the, in the industry, in the restaurant industry in Louisville. So is that going to involve extended conversations with people over time? Or do you want to <laughs> say more about that? I wanted to give myself a lot of space. You know, I waited this long to come back to grad school. So <laughs> if my dissertation project takes like a year longer than usual to be what I want it to be, then fine. I think that my project will take longer than it normally does because it's very based in like participatory action research and community-based research methods. And in order to do those well, you, you have to form the relationships. I also have no expectation of leaving Louisville in the next few years. The community itself is important to me. I have ties there. so. And so are you going to be speaking mostly with Workers, are you also going to talk, uh, uh, like, servers? Are you going to be talking with people in kitchens and owners? I Yeah, all three, very much. And to a degree, I'll also be talking with people who work in the city. Because I'm, I'm thinking about how restaurants work for the national economy as an industry. But I'm also thinking about how they work for regional economies or city economies. And a big piece of how they work is through urban tourism. When I'm looking at that, then you start thinking about city planning. Then I have to start thinking about what kind of revitalization is happening right now. So to a lesser degree, I'll be talking to people about that, but mostly owners and workers. And I'll be looking pretty equally at the front and back of house, not one over the other. I see a lot of tensions in the restaurant industry, but I feel like that tension between the front and back of house feels a little like a smokescreen. It feels divisive, unnecessarily divisive. Mm -hmm. 
I want to really look for what the real tensions in the restaurant industry are. So earlier you said that the restaurant industry isn't working well for workers and it isn't working well for owners, but it is working well for the economy. And I, I wanted to follow up with that. What did you mean by like, in, in what ways do you see that it is working well? I think that the restaurant industry in a lot of ways and how it functions is kind of like an original gig economy model. It really thrives on the most marginalized communities in our country working in a very temporary part-time contract kind of capacity. And that's a really useful labor valve. When we need to lay off or get rid of those people, when we have labor surpluses, it's very easy to do. I think keeping those restaurant workers flexible and disposable is um, a really important tool for the national economy. I'm speaking with geographer Jen Watkins. More from our conversation after a quick break. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats, and we're back with geographer Jen Watkins, talking about her research on the restaurant industry. One of the things that the pandemic brought to light is how important restaurants are to, for lack of a better word, to consumers. Dining out is a central feature of American culture. Not for everyone, but for a large segment of the population. You know, we we eat out a lot. We eat out so much. I do think that this is partially to do with American culture around eating, how dependent we are on eating out, and how that is a really interesting transformation from elite luxury dining at the turn of the century to what we have in this moment. And there are obviously some really great scholars on the history of restaurants from one of our own. Rebecca Spang's book is really excellent. So, you know, I try mostly to just think about that that transition over time and why it was happening, but most of my research is based in, like, current economic issues. So I did have some questions about, the, about restaurants and the pandemic. Sure. So with the shutdowns in the early months of the pandemic, restaurants— did face a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And also food workers suddenly were seen as essential. Mm-hmm. And restaurant workers were expected to return to what are often low wage and undervalued jobs, usually without benefits or with things like health insurance or paid sick leave, expected to risk their health um, and put up with sometimes demanding or verbally abusive customers. I mean, you were talking about that as just a normal occurrence, but then really heightened with the pandemic. Sure. And just, you know, to me, it felt like this. these were the expectations just so that a more privileged segment of society could continue dining out. Mm-hmm. And um, during a pandemic, like to not have that disrupted any further. <laughs> Did the particular conditions of the COVID-19 pandemic figure, is that figuring into your project at all? I don't think fundamentally it changed my project, but I I think it made it very 
clear that there were cracks in the foundation. And it always helps to have your own pet research project suddenly be have a national audience. I think that it really exposed how bad these jobs were. And I think it also really exposed how Americans feel about restaurants and the people who work them. There were a lot of really gross narratives about people being lazy. What are we going to do with all these people quitting? We keep seeing this throwback to the teenager job of like fast food restaurants, like anybody could do this. This kind of unpleasantness we see in in how customers deal with restaurant workers is really just a reflection of what is happening in all of the U.S. It's just what makes it different is that servers in restaurants are in this unique position where their customers are more their bosses than their bosses are. They are directly tied to what money they make through tips. And so that just exacerbates every situation. Every moment of like what we talked about racism or sexism, it is all tied to money. This person directly decides whether you get paid for your labor or not. And that's, I think, what makes it the tipping point between people quitting or not. And then in the pandemic, not only are people doing this to you, and they decide whether you get paid for your labor or not. But then all of a sudden you have this health risk on top of it. And again, if the people who are sitting in that restaurant seat don't believe in wearing masks, for example, if you refuse to take yours off, you don't get paid. So I think that's what makes restaurant work different is that that determines everything. I think you're right that it's this place where attitudes that exist in other places in society are, you can really, they're really visible because there's that interface. Mostly we don't talk to the Amazon worker who's picking our order or the person who's manufacturing our clothing or whatever. And so all of the attitudes that people have about superiority over certain kinds of laborers or whatever, they get to interface directly and also grant or withhold this payment mm-hmm. <laughs> in the moment. It's, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting site of study, I would think. Right. It magnifies a lot of racial and gender tensions that we have mm-hmm. in our country. And, yeah, you know, the tipped wage, it's, it's this really fascinating thing, right? Because it's your payment. You worked for it. You deserve it. And that tip is built into the price of the food. But it's also a gift and an obligation, and that makes people really easily offended by your behavior surrounding it. I personally think that it makes everything unnecessarily complicated, and it should be, of course, it should be abolished, but then that throws everything out of whack. This is a very delicately balanced system for restaurant owners who literally cannot pay living wages to their workers, which brings into question the whole restaurant model. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And we have a lot of conversations around good owners and bad owners. I don't think it's always productive to bring people's morality into work models because there's a lot of gray area there. I've seen a lot of restaurant owners who aren't particularly bad employers, but if you put them in a position where they have to make a financial decision that benefits their family or their employees, they're always going to pick their family, right? So I... 
you know, there are a lot of conversations about like higher road restaurants, but there's a lot of in between there. And I don't think that those kinds of conversations end in solutions. Well, and it feels like you have an understanding that what you said earlier about the restaurant industry isn't really working well for the owners either. They're sort of really slender margins and especially smaller restaurants, I would imagine it's pretty hard to make profit. Right. So it, it sounds like you aren't necessarily saying it's all their fault. It's like a larger no. picture. I think that's a tension that's really easy to throw out there, like the front and back of us thing, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the terrible owner narrative is also really easy to throw out there. And sure, there are a lot of restaurant owners who are very bad employers. But you can say that about any industry. I think we can just safely say that in the U.S. there are a lot of bad employers. It's an incredibly difficult business to run successfully. And then you think about all the aspects of it, like paying your employees a living wage plus locally sourcing food, plus having like an ambiance that will drop, like a good location, a good garden in the front, cute leather boots, whatever. Those are a lot of different competing expenses that are all working together. When you have to make those decisions, do you buy the nicest ingredients to make your food since that's why people are there? Or do you pay your employees $2 more an hour? Or do you rent the building that's going to put you in the location that gives you the highest chance of success? I think that in many ways, restaurant owners have one of the most complicated business owning ventures that you can think of. They are balancing so many different goals in one space. And it is really successful, as we can see with turnover. Also, if there was one thing I would say the pandemic really laid bare, it was how precarious most restaurant owners are, that you are one emergency away from just being, I'm trying to think of a word that is not a cuss word. <laughs> but you're just like one emergency. Well, being done. Yeah. Yeah. Being out of business. Right. I think that was like a big thing. And, uh, you know, of course, for everybody, all industries, the pandemic made it very clear that workers were done. Right. That they were willing to walk away from a job if it wasn't paying their bills anyway. If it's not paying your bills, if it's not feeding your kids, then there's no point in staying. Yeah. And and that was another question that I wanted to ask is, do you think the pandemic changed anything in the industry? I mean, I know that it seemed like, you know, there was more exposure, more discussion about the restaurant industry. And in my memory, it came pretty close on the heels of the Me Too reckoning that was also happening in the restaurant, some of these high-end restaurants anyway. There was some exposure about the ways that employees were being treated, sexual harassment and abuse in the industry. But in the pandemic, it really did seem like workers started to not see their value, because I'm sure they saw their value all along, but to just maybe begin to leverage that a little bit. But do you think that is going to have any lasting change? Well, like wages, for example. We all saw restaurant wages go up quite a bit, especially fast food restaurants. But if you looked at the language around their hiring and what they were offering, it was very impermanently worded. There was nothing that prevented them from walking it back later. I mean, look at us now. Like, restaurant wages aren't in the news right now. 
So if they if they walk that back, I mean, as far as wages go, as long as there's no set minimum wage, like raising that, there's nothing to prevent these companies from getting around those r- wage raises they did during the pandemic. As far as the quality of employment, you know, I think that generally all industries are very slowly and very gradually improving when it comes to gender inequality. A little bit. It is easier to speak out against restaurant owners and customers in situations of racism or misogyny or whatever. But then I also think that we shift as inequality for women narrows. We find new people to make second-class citizens. Maybe there's less antagonism towards women in restaurants right now, but we have an increasing amount of antagonism towards trans populations in restaurants. It just ebbs and flows. I don't know that I necessarily see people be... I guess, short answer, I don't necessarily see customers behaving better. (laughs) And I don't know that I see employers long-term behaving better. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and what you said about... Maybe inequality with women narrowing, that can also reverse. Mm -hmm. Women in the restaurant industry has always been a very ebb and flow sort of thing. Before World War II, that was a very male-dominated profession. In the 80s, when they were like really trying to get women into the workplace, I, I actually worked on a digitization project during the bicentennial where I went through student newspapers from several different IU campuses. And there's like a five-year slot right there in the 80s where McDonald's has this huge campaign trying to get moms to come work for them, getting women into these fast food restaurants as secondary income. And, you know, then there was a reverse of that, like maybe 10, 15 years later, where they were encouraging women to start staying at home with their kids again. So this idea of women working in the restaurant industry has never been static. It's always gone up and down depending. Mm -hmm. I think we see the largest breakthrough, permanent breakthroughs is with women in chef positions, women in the kitchen. And there are a lot of things that have generally changed that. You know, a lot Mm -hmm. of male celebrity chefs have gotten exposed and blasted. However I feel about reality television, all of these competitions with women in them in the past 10 years, like the Food Network in general has made women chefs much more visible. Yeah. So I would say that's a more permanent. So there was one other thing which you did touch on, but I wanted to come back to it. You said that the restaurant industry is really understudied in academia. It's not a common topic of study. I just wonder if you wanted to say more about that. or Well, first, I think that's going to change. I think that the pandemic made it an area of more interest. There are people who do work on like the invention of the restaurant, the history of the restaurant, the transition of that kind of fine dining from Europe to the U.S., In that historical work, I don't see a lot about workers. I see a lot about rich people and celebrity chefs. Part of it was because they were actually hard to document because people were so mobile and so seasonal. 
again, there are a lot of people who are doing cultural restaurant work, but maybe a handful. I can I can think I could safely say like maybe 10 scholars that are doing work about restaurant labor, which is a pretty small number. There's a lot more attention being given to like egg, meat packing, grocery stores. And to the food itself, too, yes. I would think, you know. Yeah, the food is an object, right? And that's one thing I'm really interested in is how to... <clears throat> Bridge the gap in these two literatures. So we have labor literature, things with political economy, things with inequality. And then we have all of this food literature about aesthetics, about food as an object. And there's no meeting in the middle, but they are connected in the restaurant. I've spent a lot of time trying to think through how to bridge that gap and how to think of these things all in this one space that is the restaurant. Well, I want to thank you for talking with me, and I look forward to talking with you again in a couple of years and seeing seeing where, where some of this work has gone, because it all does really sound very interesting, and I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. That was Jen Watkins, Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Geography at Indiana University. She's talking about her research on the restaurant industry. If you're not already following us on Instagram, you can find us at Earth Eats. We also have some fun recipe videos from my home kitchen on YouTube. You can find us by searching for Earth Eats or WFIU and WTIU on YouTube. There's a playlist there with all of our cooking videos. You can also easily find the link on our website at eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Jennifer Watkins. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.